Hello, everybody. Welcome to the new bonus episodes, or the bonus series, for the second season. Um, I attended the Costa Rican Big Data School, and, you know, I thought that maybe, maybe, <laughs> some of you can take some value out of this. Um, you know, many aspiring computer scientists and software engineers would really benefit from the things that they talk about in this event. This was a five-day event from Monday through Friday, um, from 8 to 4, <laughs> so it was pretty extensive, and they talked about a lot of different subjects and, uh, you know, very important things that you got to know in this day and age with big data and data science and data analysis. So I thought, you know what, I'll put this up. Maybe some of my listeners can take advantage of this and can benefit from listening to really, really high-end professors uh, from the... Texas Advanced Computing Center. Um, so, our instructors will be Weiya Shu. He's a PhD and the group lead for data mining and statistics group. Prior to joining TAC, he obtained a master's degree in biological sciences and a doctoral degree in computer science from the University of Texas at Austin. Then there's also Charlie Day. Charlie Day is the Director of Training and Professional Development with the User Services Group at TAC with a background in web development and scientific computing. Charlie's responsibilities at TAC include organizing, developing content, and building curriculums for TAC's academic course selection taught in conjunction with several departments at the University of Texas at Austin, as well as for TAC's professional development and educational team. Oh well. Oh, and just a quick thanks to Danny Sie, who was the one who recorded these uh, segments. Without him, we wouldn't have this awesome bonus round. <laughs> so thank you very much, and enjoy. All right, so um, the latter part of this, the latter part of today and tomorrow, we're going to be focusing on different aspects of Python programming. So to make sure that we're all kind of up to speed um, on Python and the ability to do scientific programming with Python, we're going to go ahead and go through a little tutorial uh, this morning, uh, this afternoon, and later this afternoon, extend that tutorial to a little further. Okay, so to get things started, um, just show of hands, how many people have used uh, Jupyter Notebooks? Alright, so we have a few, we have a number of people, that's good. We're going to go through a little bit of a, a kind of a, a short course on which, what notebooks are for and what we can use them uh, for. And we have a couple of resources on TAC that we'll try to get a little bit into. Um, so first off, this is what we're planning on covering today. For the rest of the day, we're going to be introducing you guys to Jupyter Notebooks. Uh, we'll go through kind of a Python tutorial, a hands-on session with that. And just because, uh, since we are talking about data, and we are talking about big data, we're going to be talking a little bit about linear algebra, just to catch everybody up to linear algebra. So I don't, don't like reading math into, into things, because a lot of people are afraid of math, but linear algebra is the language of data. So we're going to be doing a little bit of linear algebra refresh, and then we'll do some linear algebra applications uh, in Python. Okay, so first off, um, can everybody try going to jupyter.pac.cloud, which is our uh, our Jupyter system for this 
So if you go to jupyter.cache.cloud, you will uh, come up to a window that looks like this. If you click sign in with Jupyter Hub, it'll take you to this screen. And just so I will be at the same place you will. You should be able to use one of your you should be able to use that training account to log in here. So you have training and a bunch of numbers. Password might be kind of difficult. If you're having issues logging in, uh, try typing your password into like a uh, into a notebook, just straight text, and make sure that the passwords are matching. So, so this, so, Colorblind sometimes, I don't realize it. All right, so this is actually kind of an interesting system. So remember how I said earlier that we have uh, a bunch of cloud resources. This is actually sitting on a cloud. Uh, this is also sitting in a container with an API behind it. So we have um, a cloud system. The cloud has a bunch of containers on it. When we went to jupyter.tac.cloud, it launched one of those containers and it put all the security settings on it. When uh, the screen earlier to this, when it said the Agave API login screen, so Agave is our middle layer. So we've created this API that allows users to interact with our supercomputers. So that middle layer is called Agave. It's something we've uh, we introduced in-house. It allows for you to execute jobs remotely on uh, TAC supercomputing resources. So that is kind of our access to the cloud in a way. So this is sitting on a cloud. It has the, the, the uh, it, when we first launched it, it opened up a container uh, that has this, this uh, Jupyter session installed and then that has a lot, of, a lot of Python, a lot of libraries installed on it for us. So we don't actually have to do this ourselves. Kind of things, the interesting things to note is first off, we have this folder called TACWork. If you click on TACWork, uh, this is the directory that is located on our stockyard machine. And it is what binds all of our systems together under the same uh, work folder. So what people can do now is, no matter what machine you're actually on, or what machine you're using, you can go to the other machines and see what your data sets in there. So all my data sits in Stampede 2. So these are all of our machines at TAC. Uh, actually, I thought it has some fun network. All right, so for these sessions, what we're going to do is we're going to have you guys go to Stampede 2, and that's where your notebooks will be. Uh, feel free to create a folder, and you can create your folder, you can call your folder Jupyter. 
So I put all my notebooks in here, things that I test on. Okay, so once we got our notebooks up and going, if everybody's logged in. Yeah, that's okay, it'll be empty for everybody. I just have my stuff inside there. So, was it everybody able to log into Jupyter on the TAC Cloud? Fantastic. Okay, so we'll continue. Okay, so uh, for those of, those of you who uh, are new to Jupyter, so what is Jupyter? It's a web-based uh, interactive computing tool uh, for, basically it captures a whole computing process. So the problem that's been up until now is there, there had never existed a tool for computer scientists and domain scientists to really share their entire environment. Okay, so Jupyter was one of the first places that was created. Originally it was called IPython Notebooks, but since then Jupyter has kind of branched off besides just using Python. And it's for the entire computation process. So you can develop code, you can document your code, which is really important in my, in my field because we don't document code at all. Uh, executing your code and then communicating results with other people, right? So how do they work? So uh, a notebook has one interactive session connected to a kernel. So what we have behind the scenes, you have this Jupyter notebook with a bunch of different lines of code that you can put in there. It's got a kernel list that's behind it. That kernel is essentially the programming language that you're gonna be using. So you have a Python kernel, you have R kernels, there are Fortran kernels out there, C++ kernels, there's a lot of them out there now. Um, there's like the Wolfram Alpha has a kernel as well. So the kernel remains active behind the web browser, even if it's closed, it's still active, it actually runs on a, on, a, on a different machine. You can install Jupyter Notebooks so it runs locally on your machine as well. So, um, in a nutshell, what this means is notebooks are interfaced to a kernel. So the kernel we're going to be using is Python 3, and the notebooks are going to be uh, what we're going to use to execute our code, to document our code, and essentially, uh, essentially give us this live note training notebook that we'll have at the end of uh, end of the week. Okay, so notebooks are structured. There's basically two components of a, a Jupyter notebook. There are coding cells that were essentially that's where exactly we put down all of your code, and markdown cells, which is essentially what you use to document uh, document the entire coding procedure, what how what you're trying to solve, how you're trying to solve it, and whatnot. Uh, so markdown cells, you can, it's really cool. It's just simple markdowns. So you can put headings. Uh, you can put ordered lists. You can put unordered lists. It actually even accepts HTML. And what's really cool, I'm not sure if anybody is in here uses LaTeX, but LaTeX is a really, is a great tool to uh, diagram equations. So you can actually use LaTeX in, in your uh, cells as well. So I'm actually gonna put this in, in a LaTeX cell here, if I can. So I'm gonna copy that. And I'm gonna say new, Python 3, so if I put that cell inside here, say I need a uh, markdown, well, like, like I said, we'll walk through this. Let's go markdown cell. Oh, come on. Nope, didn't want to paste. Now you're gonna make me type that out by hand. I say dollar sign e to the power uh, 
I don't have my parentheses set correctly, but essentially you can do mathematical equations in there. Uh, you can do headings, so I can. So you know, I can do headings in here as well. So here I say uh, this at the start. Essentially, we can now get our notebook started and get our code going. <clears throat> All right, so the workflow is so typically we kind of work on uh, when you're working on a computational problem, uh, we work on that problem in, in little bits and pieces, right? So I, I don't like I don't like podiums. I like walking around. Just, all right, so when we're usually working on a problem, we kind of break our problem into pieces. So the notebook is actually designed to be able to allow for that kind of a problem to, to be able to build. You can organize your ideas together into single little cells, and then you can move your you can move forward once you have each one of those little individual cells of your program working properly. You can then move to the next part of your program, and so on and so forth. And then of course you can test all the way along the way, which makes your code work a lot better. Um, so this is the main question that people always get to is. Um, how do you how do you build your notebook? All right. So I always use the example of make it look like what your a lab notebook is going to look like. So um, my father used to work as when he was a when he was doing his PhD. He used to work in he used to his PhD in aerospace engineering and he worked in a wind tunnel. So when he would uh, put different models in his wind tunnel, he would have to record everything, you know, what all the different variables are that he used, what model he put in there, what the velocity was, and then he had to output all the results that were coming in and put together this big laboratory notebook. The idea behind it was, I put this notebook together, I can give that to my colleague, my colleague can rerun the exact experiment by going through my notebook step by step. You should be able to get the exact same results I did. So that essentially is what we're trying to do with these notebooks. Now we are beyond just running experiments. Now we're also creating data sets. We're doing things computationally. So the Jupyter Notebook is designed to essentially be your lab notebook, but in a computational level, right? So that should kind of be your guide. What is it that you're going to be going step by step to be able to solve whatever it is we're going to solve at the very end? And of course, we document along the way. <clears throat> cool thing about it is now your notebooks can be split up whether you're getting too long, you can split it by topic, you put separate notebooks together and then join them up later. So here's some shortcuts. Uh, the first shortcut is shift enter. Shift enter automatically runs the cell. Remember we have two types of cells. We have the markdown cells and we have our code cells. So if we have a markdown cell, this is where we choose what kind of cell we want our, our notebook to be. So if I choose it to be a markdown, and I can put a subheading in there, so this will be a triple heading. Um, my, say, my first icon code. So I write that in, I hit Shift Enter, it's gonna execute that, and since it's a markdown, 
It's going to automatically format that for me. There's also um, control enter. So if you notice, when I did a shift enter, it actually gave me a new line. If I use control enter, it's going to actually keep, keep me where I'm at. So if I go back here and double click to edit, and I hit uh, control enter, it's going to execute that line of code, but leave my uh, leave that cell active. So it's not going to give me a new cell. Uh, Alt enter is run cell, insert cell, and that's, I usually don't really bother with these. I'm just putting these on here for you guys to understand that they exist. And then way back in the day, there was two different modes. You had command mode and you had edit mode. So escape and enter uh, change which mode you're currently running. And so those are essentially the basics of all of our first pipe, our first notebook. Is your, what it comes down to, you have code cells and markdown cells, and you select what type it is uh, from the dropdown menu. All right? Also, you can select up there to give your notebook a name. So I'm going to give my notebook. Uh, I'm going to call it Hello World, and we should be set to go. Okay, so I'm going to do a little bit of flipping back and forth because the, the resolution doesn't allow me to split my screen up. So we're going to go a little bit back and forth. This is all about um, following along. This is all about hands-on because there's going to be some exercises that we're going to be building for something big. All right, and this is how I kind of like, usually how I kind of even do my classes is we kind of introduce some concepts, and the concepts are going to build on, on top of one another. Uh, tomorrow, what I'd like to do is introduce you guys to object-oriented Python, where you're actually creating your own data types and creating your own object types. And we want to build ourselves towards the actual scientific problem, which is disease propagation. All right? So I kind of want you guys to think about everybody you talked to today, everybody you shook hands with today. Uh, how does that process work? So one thing that we were looking at in our class is one thing that's a really big issue going on in the U.S. is we have a lot of people who are anti-vaxxers. They're people that are against vaccinations. So we decided well, let's create a project just to show them what vaccination actually does. So we have this disease propagation model. The idea is we have a, we're going to build a person object. The person object's going to have a bunch of attributes to it. In our case, they'll just have one attribute. Uh, and it's whether or not that, what that status of the person is. Whether he is sick, inoculated, he's susceptible, or he's cured. All right, so those are the four aspects that we're looking at. And with those four aspects, we're gonna have, say, a population of 100. We're gonna have one person be sick, and then we'll see how fast that disease propagates through a population of 100. Then we're gonna start inoculating people. So now, they have been vaccinated. And we'll see if we can find out where that sweet spot is, where the disease lasts the shortest amount of time and the most people are vaccinated. All right? That's what our end goal is by the end of tomorrow. I hope to be able to get, get you guys there. And then Thursday, the plan is we're going to do some data analysis on the set of data that we created from tomorrow. But this will hopefully get us there. And of course, we'll have some fun and do some math along the way. Okay. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to uh, open up our window and in our code cell we're going to type hello world. So the joy of the hello world program is this is the only program that never needs debugging or shouldn't ever need to go debugging. So print hello world and if you hit shift enter it should say hello world. So another type of uh, 
uh, cell that I was now introduced is the output cell. Things I want you guys to look at is this number. Since this is actually a notebook and is actually uh, this is a interactive notebook, lines can be ran out of order. So this line says print hello world. This will tell you which just got executed and what order it got executed in. So if I were to type another hello world, If I were to type another hello world, say print hello universe. Now if you notice it says input number three. But I can always go back to number two and run that again. And so now that has become input line number four. So things can be ran out of order. And that's actually kind of important when we're actually analyzing data and we're using variables to make sure that uh, the data sets that we're, the variables that we're using are actually ran in a particular order so we know what to expect. All right, so hopefully everybody was able to get the whole world to work. Because we got that to work and should be clear. All right, we can also do uh, direct statements. You can do print, you can do other prints as well. You can print numbers. Um, So on and so forth, and we can run those, and it gives us what those outputs are, which is exactly what we would expect. So so far, this is just really uh, writing some simple Python code in our uh, input lines and getting some output directly. So you can also see what I was meaning earlier is we can split our programs up into categories. So each little section of input can actually do a specific job that we want it to do. Right. So now, of course, the first thing we need to do is, and we can, every program, so uh, how many people here are actual Python programmers? All right, so we have a few, great. So I'm sorry, this might be kind of tedious for you guys. But if, how many of you actually have programmed in any language? Okay, so there's one thing I tell students a lot, is once you learn how to program in, in a language, it doesn't matter what programming language it is, you'll be able to program in any language. It's just a question of semantics. Every programming language is going to have the exact same uh, the exact same abilities, right? You're going to need to store your data somewhere, so you need variables. Uh, you need to be able to control your program uh, to split up and do, and do different things, so you have control structures. Uh, you're going to be able to want to organize your program better, so it's going to have uh, subroutines or functions involved. And then there's every programming language has something that makes that programming language a little bit more exciting or a, a little bit different than all the other languages, right? Uh, C++, for example, the way it, C++ does objects and classes is really different than what other programming languages do, and it's very powerful at it. Uh, Java is really cool. The only thing I really love about Java is the way it does abstract classes. You know, so you can define an object without having to define an object. You can just define it in code while you're running, which is cool. Uh, Fortran. Fortran is awesome because it does math is in a really unique way so I can multiply matrices together and not worry about anything else. You know, Python does the same thing. And as we kind of go through these exercises, we'll get to my favorite bit about Python, all right? Okay, so to store variables, we need, uh, to store data, we need variables. And uh, those variables, you can read, so later on in our code, we can re 
use our variables, uh, just whatever we set it to. Uh, the best, the only real way you set variables is you declare a name, give it an equal, and give it a value. And Python is is uh, is case sensitive, so capital A is not the same as lowercase a. Unlike those of us in here who are Fortran coders, uh, Fortran is not case sensitive, so capital letters, lowercase letters are the exact same thing. All right, so let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and run this a little bit. Uh, put some variables in and just kind of execute your code and see what it looks like. And for those of us who are not Python programmers, I, I want you guys to think about what we're not doing, all right? And I guess my slide actually has the uh, answer there, so, you know, spoiler. And I'm gonna do that here as well. So I'm gonna set up some members. So we're having all these variables that come in, you know, I'm going to create a screen and call it the world. Uh, I'm going to create my name, equals Charlie, and so on and so forth, right? And now, of course, I can recall those names, I can print those out. What's really kind of cool with Jupyter Notebooks is I technically don't have to use the print statement. I just put the variable name if I wanted to, and all that can tell me what that variable is. Print just makes it nicer because I will forget, and just in a regular Python code, I will put without a print statement and then throw myself off. But you know, we can put our print statements out there, we can put our my strings out there, your string names, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> now, I kind of spoiled it on the slide, but those of us, uh, those of us who are not Python programmers, what am I not doing? So the C++ coders in here and Fortran coders, I really hope there are some Fortran coders. Um, if you don't know Fortran, you should definitely go learn Fortran. But C++ coders and Fortran coders, what are we not doing with our variable types here? Yeah. We're not declaring them. Yeah, exactly. We're not even typing them. We're not even saying that, you know what, five is an integer or my string is a character array or string, however you want to look at it. We're not typing our variables. So Python automatically types our variables for us, which is actually really, really cool. Um, it also kind of sometimes may get in the way. What's interesting though is that behind the scenes type Python is actually giving us a data type. So if I go here and I say, hey, um, what type is five? It'll tell me, hey, uh, five is of type class integer. Now, something else to look at and keep in mind for now is the word class, because we're going to talk about objects tomorrow, and uh, that's going to come in and play an important role. So we can also look at, hey, what, uh, what about uh, my string? Right, it says class string, and of course we can look at uh, type, I think I called it two dot. And it realizes that two dots afloat, my string is a string, and five is an integer, which means that as we are declaring our variables, or as we're using our variables, it's automatically declaring them for us, it's automatically giving us a type for that variable as well. So it is understanding that behind the scenes. But that does mean it comes, it gives us a few problems. So even though we have you know, 100, 
a 100.0 string variable and we're not typing anything, because we're not typing things, things get a little confusing. For example, if I say, all right, uh, print, let's say uh, I have two equals two. All right, and let's make sure we can print uh, what two is. All right, and now let's print what five divided by two is. And what if I say, okay, five divided by two, I know that type five, that's an int, type two, that's an int, um, and if I say c is equal to zero, this is Python 3, so it might actually be gone now. I'll come and see what happens here anyways. Uh, and we'll do a type C. C is an int. That's very good. So if I say C is now equal to uh, 5 divided by 2, and what is C now? Now this is what's kind of cool. What is? What about now? C has magically changed from a float to, or from an integer to a float. Even though if we're looking up here, C was originally an int. I said it as an int. I didn't tell that I did it as a float, but it converted for me. Now, unfortunately, that that can be referred to kind of as a, a bug fix, but also uh, a, a error that we wanted. Sometimes we like to make sure that we want to see what the integer portion of something is or what the float portion of something is, right? So because that exists, we can actually convert things for us. So if I can say what the integer of C value is, we'll go ahead and cast it. So casting is kind of important. Uh, it's not something we use quite often, but in scientific programming, at least on um, uh, programs that we write, casting comes into comes in a lot of use. When you want to convert something from a float to an int, or some from a string uh, to a, you know to a float or something. I would do want to make one thing that when we are doing these kind of conversions, it you can only convert data that makes sense that you're trying to convert. All right. For example. If I try and do a conversion, say an integer of my string, I can type. It gives us this really bizarre error, and it's an invalid literal for int with base 10 below world, which in real English is saying that, hey, I'm trying to convert the below world into a base 10 integer. I have no idea what that's trying to convert to. So it only, you can only convert, only cast data that makes sense that you're trying to cast. For example, that actually works. Uh, also, uh, error handling in uh, Python, just like any other programming language, is horrible. Uh, so try and understand. If you see an error come up, look at your code and try and figure out what's mostly going on, especially when you have lots of uh, lots of moving pieces. Especially in Python, that's very easy to do is having a lot of moving pieces. All right. Um, everybody good so far? We should all be together, right? Everybody understands what we're trying to do? We've created some variables, we've given the variable values, we've kind of taken it all together and shown, hey, you can see uh, what different types of variables are and how to cast those variables. Everybody good? Very cool. All right. So we have variables. The next thing we want to do is we want to do something with those variables. So, of course, we're going to use some arithmetic operations on them. So you have plus, minus, uh, division, 
The modular function is really, really cool. Uh, multiplication, we can do floor division, and we can raise the power up. So two, uh, instead of using the characters, two asterisk signs, and that's where you raise the power up. Uh, they kind of look all the same, and everything kind of works really well. So if we do a, a print, five divided by two, we get that. If we do, by the way, if you use the arrows, you can go backwards to different cells and go back and edit them. Hit, so use your arrow to go back to a previous cell and hit uh, enter to actually edit that. If we do four division on five divided by two, you see that gives us what the four is. Um, we can do raise the power in two stars. It'll, it'll raise everything for us. So simple arithmetic operations that we're going to have to put together to get our, our pieces to flow right. Okay. Um, also, some things that are kind of cool. So we can do arithmetic operations for us. We can do arithmetic operations on things that we saw. Right? Um, Notice also those of us who are not C++ Fortran programmers, it doesn't really matter if we're dividing two integers and it realizes that the, the response is a float, it'll convert to a float for us. Uh, you remember C++, if you divide two ints, you're going to get an int regardless. If you divide two floats, you get a float. Into the float, you get a float. If there's two integers, it will give you an integer in response. Python's a little smarter, so it's going to try and fix those, uh, those gotchas for you. We can also do strings. So I can say print below plus world. And it'll give us what the hello world is at. Um, we can also do interesting things like, we can't multiply strings together. It doesn't like that at all. But while I was playing, I noticed you can multiply strings and numbers together. And it'll just repeat, which is kind of cool as well. Unexpected, but it was kind of cool when I came across that. And order of operations exists as well. So if I do uh, five times two, you know, plus three, it'll go and give us twenty-eight. Um, and then if I say divided by one, no, it's divided by ten, it'll go ahead and divide three and ten, five raised to the power of two, and then add those together. So order of operations in Python uh, remains. Uh, and of course, as we already saw before. When you get these responses, it'll always show you the correct type. So, and it doesn't really matter what we're looking at, it will automatically convert the uh, convert two integers being divided with one another and come up with an int. So if I say, um, actually I'm not sure about that, let's try. Number one equals 5.0 divided by 2.0. Um, num two is equal to five divided by two. All right. And then we'll look at what type number one is. And let's print what type number two is. So they're both floats. All right, that's what I was hoping to see. Okay, um, I'd like you guys to try this. So numin equals input, please enter a number. So what's really cool about Jupyter Notebooks, and unfortunately we don't have time really dig into notebooks, but we can control little widgets, put little widgets together and have drop-down menus and slider controls and all that stuff, which is really kind of cool to play with, but um, like a Jupyter can be like an entire one-week session in and of itself. 
Uh, so let's do the num equals input and say um, please enter a number. And if we run that, you guys notice that there is a, uh, a text box for us to put something in. So we can type in a number, right? Now, I want you guys to try this. What is type num? <laughs> Anybody have a guess what type of number is? String, which means that I cannot do print num uh, plus three. It'll give me an error. So Python, says, Python knows that, hey, you asked to enter something, you entered something, and it went ahead and say, okay, it's, it doesn't know whether or not it's a real number you entered or if it's a string that you entered. So it makes an assumption that it's a string and does not convert. So even though it auto-converted all the other stuff for us, when it came to actual inputs, it doesn't. So you have to, have to put a little bit of code inside there to verify what the, what the person entered in. Okay. Um, meanwhile, if we rerun that and say, hey, we can, so if it's a string, that means it's happy if I can put a string in there. So I can say hello. And it'll understand that. And it'll understand what that is. And now I can still give me an error. I just want to print that by itself. Every now it prints hello. Okay. And of course, there's a bunch of techniques, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but there is a bunch of techniques you can do to make sure that your uh, output looks pretty. Uh, here's the thing I always tell people is there's only a small number of people out there that can actually read raw numbers, and it's a really small percentage of people. And unfortunately, usually that percentage of people aren't the people in charge of giving you money for your data. So one thing you have to do is make your data look pretty. So there's a lot of different formats available to make sure your data looks pretty when other people are looking at what your results are, they'll be able to say, oh yeah, these results make a lot of sense. Let's give this person money to use it. So this, these are some of the formats you can do. Uh, percent D allows you to do, uh, to, Percent D allows you to format numbers that are going to be uh, integers. Uh, percent F allows you to do floating point. Uh, percent S for strings, and then of course you can tab things around. You use slash N for a new slot, uh, for a new line, or slash T to insert a tab so everything lines up pretty. Okay, you can also write to files. So files are really important to write to because you want to actually output your data. We'll talk about more uh, more about writing files. Uh, on Thursday when we actually do mess with data. But I want to show you that this actually exists. So you can create output files. Um, you tell you how, how you want your output file to react, whether you want to write to it, read from it. And then it, you just basically say, all right, I'm going to open up a file. I'm going to start uh, putting variables inside there. And then when you output it out, it'll just show you what that file looks like. And then, of course, you end up reading the file in. Like I said, we'll talk more about that on Thursday. Okay, so these are different ways of reading from your file. Uh, just read all the content out, or read it line by line, uh, and then break those lines into different variables, and then read the variables in. And then, of course, add other little bits and pieces to make your uh, pretty make your file prettier or easier to read with the with statement. But <clears throat> the most part that we want to do. So we have variables now. We can do arithmetic operations on variables. So now what we want to do is we want to be able to control the flow of our program. 
All right. So I'm going to have, has everybody, has everybody in here programmed a little bit? So we all go through choices, right? And depending on what our daily routine is going to be, we, well, here I don't think it actually is, it looks beautiful outside. So, hey, it's sunny outside, I'm going to use my sunglasses. Or it's rainy outside, so I'm going to grab my umbrella. We make these little decisions all the time. So our code has to make these decisions as well. Uh, to get our code to make the decisions, we have to ver verify if conditions are true or false. And then do different things on top of it. So there's another data type that we haven't played with yet. We play with integers, we play with floats, and we play with strings. There's also a data type called Boolean, right? So to look at Booleans, we can say, all right, uh, we have these two variables I've created up here. Uh, I think that's five and one. So I think I'm able to do print five down and then do I print one. And then I say, hey, five is equal to one? False. Uh, notice that the double equal to is what I'm using. It's five greater. And it's like our variable two. It's five equal to one. Oh, come on, sorry. One. False uh, is five greater than one. True. And so we can do these true falses. Um, and then we can say is Five is greater than one, which is exactly the one we want. Remember, as I mentioned, you can go, this is where Jupyter notebooks can get a little on the confusing side. If I were to go back and change the value of five to say zero, so that's 53. Now, I can do that, and the other case is true. But I know that this was ran after that case, because this is number 54, and this was number 53. So this is where you can change your variables, go back, execute a line of code, and get an entirely different result. 
So the way we have, we have if a condition is uh, true, then uh, it will run a statement. We can do else if a, diff if a different condition is true. We can run a different statement. And then you have a final else. If nothing else is true, then this will be executed last. And then whatever line comes after your if statement will always be ran. All right? So uh, one other thing to remember is indentation. So indentation matters. It doesn't matter what you choose to indent or how many lines you choose to indent, but you just have to do that same number all the way across. I usually indent with three spaces, but some people do four, some people do five. But if you notice, that is what defines your if block. It's if, then what you're trying to test for. A uh, bunch of spaces, then, you can, then what, you want, what you want to do in that case is true. Uh, and then you can, if you wish to add an else if, or wish to add an else, then you just put, put, you put in the uh, additional statements. So conditions are type booleans, and essentially they can only be true or false. All right? Um, and back to our example. We can input a number. We can, now if you notice, I'm converting that number into an int. And I'm asking, is it greater than 10 or if it's less than 10? We can also, of course, nest a bunch of if statements together. So in this case, we have an if condition one, and we're writing a statement. And then we have another if involved in that with statement two. So essentially what that's saying, if condition one is true, it'll run statement one. If condition two is true, it's going to run statement two. But for statement two to execute, Condition one and condition two both have to be true. If condition true is not true, then it's going to execute condition three. So for condition three to execute, uh, for that line that for statement three to execute, that would mean condition one has to be true, and condition two has to be false, and condition three has to be true. So you can see how you're kind of stringing these all together. Uh, by the way, I should also mention this is a very good code. It's not very well optimized, all right? Because I'm it's treating all these if statements together. This is really a bad way of doing things. So what happens when you actually have a processor and you have your processor has a bunch of cores? So when it's actually executing code, so if you're to do this in Fortran or C++, when you're compiling it, and a, uh, your program is actually going to do a little bit of intelligence and say, you know what, there's an X amount of chance that this is going to be true and X amount of chance that this is going to be false. So what it, your code actually ends up doing is going to, is going to uh, take a portion of those cores and give it to the false to run, and a portion of your cores to give it to the true to run. So essentially what happens when you do a bunch of if-then statements is you are making your code run slower. So it's not as optimized. So what you need to do is, what I always tell people to do, when you're writing scientific code, write it for the main majority of your cases, and then run your code specifically for the edge cases that are not going to come up very often. So don't try and not fork your program off as much as, much as possible, because essentially uh, that's going to slow your program down. All right, so I got a question here, since we know that condition one has to be true, condition two has to be false, and condition three has to be true for statement three to run. Um, what about statement four? What's, uh, what conditions have to be true or false for statement four to run? So statement four we're looking at down here. Somebody having a, I know, Probably there's a few people out there. So for statement four to run, 
What has to be true or false? I think I heard it say, somebody said condition one. So for this statement, condition one, if it's false, then that's what's going to execute statement four. All right. So here's our first exercise. Uh, we're going to enter a number from the keyboard. We're going to read that into a variable. And then we're going to use typecasting and if statements to determine if that number is even or odd. All right. Believe it or not, this is actually a really, really uh, useful piece of program that comes into play in a lot of, lot of cases. All right, so I see no clock in here, but I got a clock in my hand. So let's take about five minutes and uh, code this up. So we know we need to have an input statement. We know we need to have a variable. Uh, we know there has to be uh, some sort of if statement involved, and we know we're going to have to cast something as something else to verify. So a little bit of hint is um, how do you determine if the number is even or odd? You divide evenly by two, right? So if I do this little bit right here, and I can't do that because I have to convert that as a integer. I should say that exercise we talk enter a number, I'm entering an integer. Um, so if I do this and I print check, oops, parentheses, I'm three, enter a number 42. And check comes out as 21. All right, so 21, did we, did, we do know that 42 is even. If I rerun this, and now let's enter an odd number, comes up as 21.5. So that should give us a little bit of a hint on how to determine if a number is going to be even or odd. Right, a couple more minutes, and then we'll look at the solution, and then we'll move ahead. All right, so what's, what's one, there's a couple different ways to do this. What's one way of doing this to determine if my number that I entered is even or odd? So I know it has something to do with check, because I want to put that up there otherwise. So check is equal. So who's got a good guess for me? Where to go for it? <laughs> Somebody's got to say something else. I'm just going to be standing here till five o'clock, and we'll get really cold really quick. <laughs> so, what determines if the number is even? Let's, let's go there. We know that divisible by two is divided evenly, right? So, in this case, forty-three. Um, let me give you a hint. What, what if we did this? Print. We looked at check already, right? What if we looked at, we know that casting is involved. What if we did that? So now I have check and I have integer check. Check is equal to 21.5. Integer check is equal to 21. So what do you think I can do inside of uh, this if statement? 
So this is going to is going to cast check as an integer, and it's determining if the integer check is equal to check. Then we know that we have something that's evenly divisible. So there we go. 43 is odd. What if we need to run this with uh, 42? 42 is even. So that works. Uh, you can also use modular. So the, what the mod function does, it tells you what the remainder of a divisor is. So we can also do it this way. If uh, check mod 2 is equal to 0, then that determines we know that the number is even. So this is where programming language in Python is a little different than a programming language in uh, C++ or Fortran. C++ or Fortran, we tell it, hey, uh, go ahead and create a loop for me, create an index, and make that index go from a starting point to an ending point and so many jumps in between, right? So we can starting point, ending point, and what we call our, our stride. Uh, Fortran or Python doesn't quite work that same way. Python is all about a, a, a list of numbers, all right? It's all about lists. So in this case, I'm creating a list. I'm telling it to build a range for me that goes from 0 to 3. And then what we're doing is we're saying, for every value inside that range, do something or repeat something. So this is a slightly different concept of loops than uh, people who, are, who program in other languages are used to. So what we can kind of do is we can actually see what the range itself does. So range is kind of a handy command. So if I say range uh, 0 to 3, oh, zero to three my bad. if you notice, um, yeah, so just tell for x goes from range to 0 to 3. But if we actually put that inside of a loop, so I say 4x in range, Three. And we use a colon. 
Now, once again, indentation is what tells us what is part of that loop and what is not part of that loop. So if I were to say print um, value of x, for instance, and then down here, print the value of x, you'll see we get two different results. But let's run this one first. So now that goes from 0 to 2. So 0, 1, 2, saying where do you want to start from and how many do you want? So 0, 1, 2, so if we crank that up to 30, and it goes from 0 to, uh, 0 to 29. And if you notice, I'm going to do this here. And crank X again. So one other thing that you notice it also does, unlike uh, other programming languages like C++, for instance, it's actually a, it's going to the range. So. So the way that C works is C does a test condition on your loop. So when we're going from 0 to 1 to 2 to 3, it's actually testing if a value is less than another value, right? So the for loop in, in uh, C++ is for int i while i less than 3 i++. So when the loop is over, the last value of i there was was the whatever value that failed that test, i less than 3. In this case, we're just looking at a range, right? So we're saying x in range from 0 to 3. So when that loop is over, x is whatever the last value was that it needed to compute. So in this case, it gave us the range 0 to 3. So it gave us 0, 1, and 2. And then that's it for the loop. So the final value of x was 2 in this case. So that's slightly things that are a little different that you might have taken advantage of in other programming languages that you can't quite do in, uh, in Python. All right, so uh, once again, indentation is important. So when something is falls in line with that indentation, it is all part of that exact same loop. So if you notice, it's, uh, it's counting by fours here, or counting by twos here, it's x and x times two. So zero, one times two is two, two times two is four, the final value of x, which is this line here, plus two. All right, we can also, um, we can also nest our loops together. So we can do something like, all right, for x in range uh, zero to five, and for y in range uh, zero to 10, And then I can say print x comma y. I'm oh, oh, sorry, question is. Why, why if the script didn't consider 3? Oh, uh, because what it does is it's going from 0 to max, to just giving three numbers after the range. So where do I want to start from, and how many do I technically want? So I want three numbers that come after 0, so 0, 1, and 2. So three is not zero, one, two, and three. It's not four numbers, it's only three numbers. Make sense? Because I'm asking for a range. I'm not asking for a linear space, which is something a little different. Linear space would include that final number, if I'm not mistaken. <clears throat> um, so if I do these over here, so we can nest our loops together, and we'll go ahead and print out our combination, zero, 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 one, zero, two, Something to look at, though, uh, is 
it's first running through all of the x, all of the y values, leaving x the same. So it's not going 0, 0, and then 1, 1, 2, 2, 3, 3, 4, 4, and then 0, 1, and so on, and so on, and then 1, 1, 1, 2, 1, 3, 1, 4. It's actually running through all the x, all the x values hold still, all the y values, then the next value of x, and then all the y values, and then the next value of x, and all the y values, so on and so forth, right? So it is actually the inner loop will run so many times, and then it goes back to the outer loop, and then the inner loop will run until it ends, and then it goes back to the outer loop, so on and so forth. Also, that means that if there's any condition that I want to check for, so I'm going to check for a condition of y, so I can say if uh, y equals 5, if I do that, this is never going to get executed. It's being, this, is, this test is being ran, uh, but the value of y is never actually equal to, um, to 5. But the flip side, of course, that is, we do know that that's going to happen. So not 10, but rather 9. Because at the end of this loop, when the next x starts, y all of a sudden has a value. Okay. So, oh, that's right. This is also kind of confusing because if you noticed, uh, the first value I got was a array which means that the y value is equal to 9. Does anybody know why that is? Um, because we already ran this loop. Since we already ran it, the last value of y that I had was 9. So when that loop was starting, the value of y I had was 9. So the first thing it did was print array. So those are the little matches I was telling you about with Jupyter notebooks can get a little confusing. So to really make this program correct, I would do x equals 0, y equals 0, and now run the code and it just runs the way I expect it to. But of course, I shouldn't be check checking for y in there anyways. I should really check for y inside my code. So now, I would say uh, if y is equal to 5. Or wasn't, we're going to print it out. 
So this is going to take a little bit of extra, a little bit of uh, the teaser here. All right, so one thing is, is in TAC, we're a bunch of geeks, we're a bunch of nerds, and something we like doing is playing with numbers. Uh, prime numbers gives us a great set of data to play with, and there's a, a bunch of properties that prime numbers have, um, which is why this exercise kind of comes in handy. So yeah, think about what it is you're trying to do and how we're trying to do it, and then uh, see if we can write this little bit of code. One line of code that might be useful to you guys is the break command. So when you use the break command, if a certain condition is met, you can break and it will exit out of your loop. So essentially our logic is going to be we're going to have two loops. One loop counts from 3 to 1,000, and then one loop is going to check to see if the number is divisible by something other than one, it, one it itself. Um, if That's our general logic behind this. We have two loops. Uh, one loop is going to count from three to a thousand. One loop is going to go from two to itself. If it's divisible by something besides itself, then the number is not prime. Else it is prime. If also the command that you might want to use is break. So when you put the break command in there, 
it will exit the loop automatically. So in this case, I say if y is equal to five, great. So if you notice, uh, it's, it, from, from when I run this code, it goes from zero, y is equal to one, two, three, four. As soon as y is equal to five, it breaks out of the for loop and goes back to the x loop. So it breaks out of this loop and goes back to the other one and continues on its way as if it never happened. So if I were to say, hey, um, let's say we wanted to break for numbers uh, less than five or greater once it becomes, say, greater than seven. So now, once the number return becomes greater than seven, it breaks out of the loop and the for loop is ended prematurely. So then this condition can be anything. We can even test if it's an even or odd number. We can test if it's a multiplot, multiplication of something else, or if it's a function that comes back as true or false. All right, so we have two loops. One loop goes from three to a thousand. One loop goes from two to itself. And if it's divisible by, by something besides itself, the number is not prime, else it is prime. And if it is prime, we're gonna print that number out. So I'll give you guys a couple more minutes here and see what you guys if you guys came up with anything interesting. Alright, so we know we need two loops. One's gonna go from three to a thousand. So let's do that one first. Um, and the number we're gonna test, this is gonna be um, Essentially tells me what that check yeah 
Yes, so the number is zero, which means they're evenly divisible. So if I just said, uh, this essentially will say print check is divisible by uh, I evenly. All right, so essentially that's what it's doing. So if this is the case, uh, so if that's the case, and I is not equal to check, we know that the number is not prime. So what if what will I have to add here to make that case? So if we did an and, what else can I put in there to make sure? So we could do check not equal to I. And essentially that gives us the condition if check, if check uh, is and check and I is evenly divisible, and check and I are not the same, then we know that the number has a divisor that's not one of itself, right? So essentially, this is telling us print number is not trying. But that's not quite what we want. We want the exact opposite of that. So, you know, of course, the easy solution is to do an else statement, right? But here's something interesting about the property of numbers, right, and property of booleans. Booleans work very much the same way if, uh, if you want to flip a condition around, essentially you can multiply it by negative one and flip your condition and flip your ands into ors, right? Which means that if I'm checked not equal to zero, or check equal to i, that's gonna tell me whether that's going to reverse my situation, right? Because if, let's see, did I do that right? Yeah, not equal to zero. So check divided by i is not equal to zero. So that case has to be true. Or check is equal to i, that case has to be true. If one of those cases are true, our number is going to be even, or our number is going to be prime. I messed that up. Right now, my, my blood sugar is running low, so or I'm running low on coffee is what the problem is. But, Essentially, we can check out and we can see what the condition is. And I'm actually just curious if this work or not. Uh, let's just print our out. Let's print our check. Let's see what we get. Let's run that. And parentheses. Nope, it didn't work. Because three, four we know is not running. Five came up many a times. All right, so let's change our, our evaluation a little bit. Can somebody say, tell me why some of these numbers are printing out more than twice? 
more than once. Yeah, it's coming across because it's got multiple dividers in there, right? So essentially what we want to do is when it does find this condition, we want to break out of our loop and not check any more conditions. So if we do that, now our number is only showing up twice, or it's only showing up once, right? But it's still not quite the case we're looking for. So if we may, we may go, I'm going to show you guys the trick here in a little bit. But we'll just reverse this. So this is showing us all the numbers which are uh, not prime. If I get rid of this line here. So these are all the non-prime numbers. So we'll just, for now, until I show you guys this little trick, we'll do more else. I'm doing the and, then those two conditions have to be true, and check 9 equal to i, and that is actually the case. For i is 9 is not equal to 3, so that's true. And check mod 3 is equal to 0, so that's true. Should, should break me out. It should not come in my else. Uh, but let's 
see what we can figure out what our issue is. Um, because I, I, I see what the problem is, and we have to. Does anybody else see what the problem is here? So we do need, exactly, we do need a Boolean in there. Uh, because what's going on is we're starting with three, or we're starting with three, and then we're getting our number in, right? But this is when this comes to a number that is already divisible by something else, and it's not equal to, we break out. But now, uh, another condition is happening where nine, so let's, let's walk through our code. Nine mod three, is it equal to zero? Yes, it is. And is uh, check not equal to i? Yes, it is, so it should be. Let's put a little sanity check in here. All right, so that's everything. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Um, so I'm thinking what's happening is it's not breaking out of my loop for a particular situation. I'm going to look at. This is the joys of live demo, when things aren't working quite the way you wanted to do. First off, does anybody get this program working properly? All right, so um, what, did, what did you do to get yours working? Well, 
Yeah, you you didn't actually need the second condition of your if statement if you go up to check because it never gets. Yeah, it never gets to its own. Right. So. And you don't need the plus one. Yeah, you don't need the plus one. Exactly. So that should work. Essentially, the logic here is we are going for our logic is still the same. We are checking, going from range three to a thousand. We're creating a little bit of a temporary, it's called a flag. So we create a flag, we set that flag to zero. And now we're checking to see if that number is equally divisible or not. If it is, then we're resetting our flag to one. All right? And then as soon as we find a number that's divisible by it, we break out of our loop. And finally, when this inside loop is all over, and we go to our second loop here, we're just seeing what the value of that flag is. If that flag is still equal to zero, uh, then we know that we never came across a, a number that's equal to divisible. So we know that number is prime. If that, if, if, because what we're doing is we're sitting, uh, is not prime equal to one inside of our loop. So this only gets the value of one if it actually found, uh, found something that's a divisible line. And once that's found, then we can exit out. Or we print, we print out what our number is, and we print out what the value is. Okay. Um, this was actually kind of a neat little problem, and it actually is kind of cool to see all the results that we get from it, where we're looking at a squared, b squared, and c squared, or no, actually, it should be a squared, b squared, and c squared, not a to the a. I should fix that. that yeah, that's wrong. So yeah, this actually should be a squared plus b squared equals c squared. And we go from 0 to 100 and you find all the triples that satisfies it. Uh, but we're not going to worry about that one right now. 
Okay, so we have a couple more things I wanted to cover here before we take our break. So the first thing we want to look at is there's also while loops. So while loops essentially keep on going until a certain condition is true and then it automatically breaks out for us. For example, we can rewrite our code here without the break by just saying, hey, uh, while our uh, condition, actually I guess we can do that here, but essentially while a condition is true or false, continue, uh, continue with your code. Um, and then essentially, so we start out with the index or what initialization is, we give it a condition, uh, we do something with it, and then we need to increment our index, right? The reason we increment our index is because that is, in this case, that is what we're testing against. But that's not necessarily the only case. So for example, if we were to redo our code, we're finding these prime numbers, we can set up an example where um, to do that exact same code except using a while loop and find the prime numbers less than a thousand. All right? So we're, let's, actually, let's see if we can convert this for in, essentially what we're going to have to do is take that number out um, and find out if we can run this code without that first check statement and check to see what the value of our uh, prime number is. We'll use a while statement instead. I'm going to go ahead and copy that into our new code. So we know this works. Now what we want to do is we want to change so it will always give us under a certain value. So first thing we need to do is we have to have an initialization. What are we going to initialize? Check to. So check is going to start from three. Now, while, um, let's see how we're going to do that. Well, we're going to see, we're only going to see if it's a prime number or not. So we're going to have check, and we're also going to have uh, prime, let's just call it prime. And we're going to set that equal to three as well. Now, while prime is less than what we were looking for, a thousand, we're going to run this thing through, right? So the only thing that we're going to, we have to indent. And we're actually going to get rid of this line because we're not going to do a for loop anymore. Essentially, what we're going to do now is we're going to do um, check. We're going to print check out. And if we are going to print check out, we're also going to go ahead and say prime equals check. Now we're setting the value of prime. And now the next thing we need to do is increase what we're checking. <clears throat> and we should get the exact same result up, up until this condition is hit. So what we're looking at is we're setting check equal to three, we're setting prime equal to three, now we have this while loop. And saying while prime is less than a thousand, we're gonna run through this code. So the first thing we're looking at is we're setting our, uh, we're going back to our flag, is not prime, setting that equal to zero. We're going to then run our loop that's going to test prime, test our check number against all the other numbers to, make, to see if it's divisible or not. If it is not divisible, 
or if it does find something that's equally divisible, we're going to say equal to zero, and then we're going to continue on. And now we're saying if it's not prime, we're going to say, all right, print it out. We're going to collect our prime number, and then we're going to increase the value of check. And now, once we have prime number set, we're going to compare it to, let's see if it's less than 1,000 or not. If it is less than 1,000, we'll continue running until it is not. Now, this is, so a while loop starts with a condition. Everything inside that while loop is going to continue running until the while loop condition is false. Once it's false, it's going to exit out and say, all right, the run's been complete. I'm going to say print. All right, so we're going to run this really quick. So everything ran. Starts with three. So far, everything's a prime number. But it goes past a thousand. Can somebody venture a guess why? Check equals three, prime equals three. Well, prime less than a thousand. Do all this stuff, right? Okay. Yeah. Exactly. That's one reason it's going on. Is also look at where our test condition is and where the value of prime is being set at. So your test condition has to be true for it to run through the condition, right? So when prime is equal to nine, 997, this test condition is true. So it's going to go through and run all this. So prime for here, prime equals 997, check equals check plus one. Condition is true, it's going to continue here again. What's the value of prime? Well, it's 997, okay? Now, of course, it's going to continue executing the code until we get the next prime number, which was 1009. Then it ran the test condition and said, oh, 1009 is not less than 1000, and it exited out, and it completed my run. So when we're running, especially a condition like this, it's going to keep on running until the condition is not true anymore. Even if that condition becomes true inside of your loop, it's not going to finish running until it actually tests it for the next iteration. That next iteration is when it's going to do our test. Hence why it took us all the way to 2009. Which for our example is fine. Alright, so the next thing is what I really want to hit about what makes Python really, really cool. And that's lists. Alright, and let's go ahead and take our break and then we'll uh, jump into lists.